Today's scripture reading is taken from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 20. I will be reading from the uh, English Standard Version. Please turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12 and follow as I read. Chapter 1 and verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Lord, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shore. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of men and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the rich of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. 
Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them. For the blood of men and violence to the earth, no cities and all, uh, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its makers, a maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him, who says to the wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no bread at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the reading of God's word for today. Thanks, Yang, for reading the word. And hello to all of you uh, here, gathered here. Good to see you all in person. And also good morning to those uh, watching the live stream at home. Uh, as we come to the Word, let's pray together and prepare our hearts to hear from Him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You for Your truth and we pray that You would open our hearts to receive from You. Father, we pray that You would send forth Your Spirit, that You would make our hearts soft Give us ears to hear, eyes to see you in your glory. And Father, grant that we would trust you, that we would walk in your ways. Uh, strengthen us, we pray. Grant us hope in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I think as Oli mentioned earlier on before he prayed, uh, I think this year has been 2020. Uh, I, I think one of the reasons why 2021 has been harder for so many of us is we've been waiting the time. We've been waiting for the pandemic to end. We've been waiting for these restrictions to ease so that we can get back to some kind of normal life. I think many of us have been tired just by this long season of uh, kind of almost standing still, kind of waiting for things to get better. You know, waiting is hard. You know, we grumble when we wait for our bus, when we wait for a train, when we can't get onto the train because it's too crowded. Some of us are going to start traveling again soon, and I think with travel comes uh, flight delays, and then we struggle when we wait for flights that, are, that seem to always be delayed. And then this is just some of the smaller things in life. Waiting for some of the bigger things in life is especially difficult. Some of us may be waiting for a job. Some of us may be waiting to get married. It's not easy as we wait as singles for marriage. Some of us may be waiting to have children. Uh, some of us may be waiting to recover from a medical condition, uh, maybe from serious illness or chronic pain. You know, waiting seems to characterize so much of our lives, and, and yet waiting is very difficult. 
is especially difficult because we live in a culture that craves convenience, that prizes speedy efficiency. You know, we live in a culture that values instant gratification. Right? Why wait when we can get it now? Right? We want things done yesterday. And when we can't get what we want, we get impatient, we get frustrated. I think many of us can resonate with this. We struggle with disappointment, we struggle with discouragement, maybe we even struggle with despair as we wait. So how then are we able to wait well? What does it look like to wait well according to God's Word? I think it may encourage us to know that the prophet Habakkuk struggled with waiting. This book is essentially his struggle with waiting and the way he wrestles with that, with God, and the way God answers him in his struggle with waiting. Habakkuk lived in trying times. He lived in the 6th century BC, about 600 years before Jesus' birth. And his own nation of Judah was in serious decline. Now, it was especially hard for Habakkuk because he had lived through a brief period of revival under King Josiah. Things seemed to be turning around under Josiah. There were reforms instituted by this good king. But then Josiah died, maybe somewhat young for for the time. And, And that revival kind of died with Josiah. Now, Judah was suffering from moral and spiritual decay. And what's worse, Judah was caught in the middle of international turmoil. The northern kingdom, its northern neighbor of Israel, had already been conquered and sent into exile by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And now the Assyrians were on the decline, and there was a new superpower in the world that was rising, the nation or the empire of Babylon. So Habakkuk lived in these tough, uncertain times where things were really, really difficult. And tough times often give rise to tough questions about life, about suffering, about death. You know, as we heard last week, Habakkuk was burdened by Judah's ungodliness. Right? So he, he brings his protest to God. Right? We, we heard this last week in chapter 1, verse 3. You know, how long, O Lord? How long? How long must I wait? He is bewildered by God's apparent indifference to sin. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? These are strong words that Habakkuk utters to God. Basically, he's saying, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing anything? Why am I waiting for what you should be doing? Habakkuk is puzzled by why he must wait so long for justice to be done. But God's reply to him is even more troubling. Right? We, we heard this last week. You know, God says that he will deal with Judah's sin, but he will deal with Judah's sin in an entirely unexpected way, in a shockingly unexpected way. Right? Chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, you know, God says, For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe, if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation. So basically, God will judge Judah, but he will do so through the ruthless, godless Babylonians. Imagine you have a nasty boss in your workplace. Right? Maybe some of us can relate to this. You know, we have a really difficult boss who is just a nasty piece of work. Right? He, he regularly mistreats his staff, is unjust in the way he handles his workers in the workplace. 
So, as a good Christian, what do you do? You pray for justice. Right? You pray for righteousness to be done in the workplace. You don't take matters into your own hands, but you submit it to God. You pray. You know, these are good and godly requests. And then the boss is removed. Right? Somehow, he's, he's removed from his position, but he's replaced by an even worse boss, by a boss who mistreats his workers even more, someone who is even more unjust. You can imagine your confusion and your distress when that happens, right? You know, God, I prayed for this, and, and how can this happen? You know, this is exactly what Habakkuk is wrestling with. His confusion and distress are coming to the forefront in this book. You know, he began by asking, How long, O Lord? And God replies. And then now Habakkuk is asking, How can? How can, O Lord? And today we'll look at Habakkuk's second complaint and God's second response to, the, to him. And as we follow the conversation between the faithful God and his feisty prophet, I pray that we will journey with Habakkuk from protest to praise, from confusion to confidence, from fear to faith. And may God help us to know more of him and his ways so that we hope in him. And may we grow more satisfied in God himself, regardless of our circumstances, regardless even of how much we understand of our circumstances. Amid perplexing providence, you know, God calls us to live by faith patiently waiting for the fulfillment of His promises and His purposes. So point one, let's first consider the, pro the prophet's protest. Verses 12 to 17 in chapter 1. Is God just? Now, if God's apparent tolerance of Judah's sin is puzzling, God's reply in verses 5 to 11 in chapter 1 is even more perplexing. It is challenging enough to wait, let alone to wait for what seems like an even worse outcome. You know, this is the problem. How can God deal with Judah's sinfulness by sending Babylon, a nation even more wicked and godless? Now, if you go to the doctor and you have, you know, you have a sickness, you go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, I have this amazing treatment, but the downside is that the side effects will be worse than your sickness. I mean, would you take it up? You know, probably not, right? Well, this is exactly what's the problem here. You know, the, the cure for Judah's sinfulness seems to be worse than the disease. So Habakkuk protests, you know, how is God just to do this? And he, he struggles not because he doesn't know God, but he struggles precisely because he, know, because, precisely because he knows what God is like. He knows God is good. And that's why he struggles with the problem of evil, pain and suffering. You know, friends, if, if God is not good, then there is no problem of evil. We expect evil. But if God is good, then why is there evil, pain, and suffering? And that's what Habakkuk is wrestling with. And in verses 12 to 13, Habakkuk affirms God's nature and character. You know, he says, are you not from everlasting? Right? God is eternal, in control of all time and history. You know, God is the rock the unchanging and steadfast one. He is the Lord, right? Habakkuk calls God, O Lord, all caps. You know, that covenant name that God uses when he redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Right? This is his covenant name that speaks of his faithfulness 
to his people, you are the Lord. And knowing God's faithfulness, Habakkuk trusts that God will not allow his people to perish. That's why he says in, chapter, in verse 12, the first half of verse 12, we shall not die. God, I know you are faithful. I know you are the rock. I know you are eternal. Therefore, we shall not die. Your people are safe. And this makes it especially hard for Habakkuk to understand how this holy covenant Lord can bring an unholy nation against his very own people. What's going on? Right, in verses 12 and 13, he says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the more righteous than he? Now, if Judah deserves judgment, then how much more the wicked Babylon? So how can a perfectly pure God allow Babylon to prosper at Judah's expense? How can God judge his people and seemingly make the evil Babylonians succeed? And to Babylon, uh, might is right. right. So how can God, who cannot look at wrong, seem to be closing one eye to the ruthless Babylonians? You know, Babylon worships its own power, you know, the, the, the same power that has brought it much conquest and much gain from the nations. Verse 17, you know, God says of, or rather Habakkuk says of Babylon, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet, basically worships his instruments of conquest, worships his own resources, worships his own ability to put the other nations under subjugation. By them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. And Habakkuk protests, how can God let this go on? Verse 17. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? How can God let this wicked nation carry on? So although he is confounded by God's ways, Habakkuk doesn't forsake God. I think this is the encouraging thing about the prophet you notice how the prophet still refers to God personally as my God, my Holy One, in verse 12. You know, so as, as we think about Habakkuk's argument and his disputation with God, you know, this is not the philosoph- you know, he's not a philosopher kind of just thinking about the problem of evil in an academic intellectual vacuum. No, this, this is a prophet who knows God, where he recognizes that this is his God, right? this is my God. And he's wrestling with his God. This is a personal crisis of faith, as it were. Personal wrestling with what God is doing. But he still acknowledges that this God is his God. And therefore, he turns to him. Habakkuk's struggles drive him towards God, not away from him. And the prophet's questions are not a sign of weak faith, but rather a sign of faith-seeking understanding. True faith isn't blind or unquestioning. True faith isn't indifferent. True faith is not fatalistic. True faith means drawing near to God when we are troubled and confused. True faith means bringing our anxieties to Him and asking Him, Help. Help. I don't understand. 
Help me understand. Habakkuk's dialogue with God also reveals God's patience, grace, and compassion in hearing the disputations of his prophet. God isn't afraid of our questions. Indeed, God invites us to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And when we think about anxieties, obviously our anxieties are not dressed up. There's a reason why they're anxieties. We don't come to him with polished arguments, with polished statements. No, we come to him sometimes with very raw emotions and struggles and we cast them at his feet and we cry out to him, help, help me understand. Help me understand. So let's look at God's reply to Habakkuk and this will be our second and third point. So the first part of that reply, verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, God's encouragement, live by faith. So Habakkuk boldly brings his complaints to God, yet he's also humble to hear from God. You know, 2 verse 1, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk likens himself to a soldier standing watch, a sentry, looking out for God's reply. Although he is perplexed by God's ways, Habakkuk knows that God is the only one who can give him wisdom and understanding. So God, you are confusing me, but I know that you are also the one who can enlighten me. Right, so the prophet prepares himself to wrestle with God. Right? He, he knows that God will reply, and maybe he's also prepared to give a response to God's reply. And you notice how it is the Lord who answers. 2 verse 2, the Lord answered me. Again, that reminder of this is a God, this is the God of the covenant, the faithful God who will speak to his people. So in verses 2 to 20, this is God's second response to Habakkuk. So firstly, God tells Habakkuk to write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Verse 2. So while this is a dialogue, you know, a very personal dialogue between the prophet and God, this dialogue is not meant to be just, uh, just for their private benefit, but this dialogue is meant for others to hear and be strengthened. Right? God wants Habakkuk to write these things down so that the rest of God's people can be encouraged by what God is about to say. As Paul says in Romans 15, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Right? So these words are, are, are conveyed to us to give us hope. And whoever reads the vision is to run with it, to go and share the good news of the hope we have in God. And God tells Habakkuk that his plan will not yet be fulfilled. In verse 3, now, verse 3 is a very reassuring verse. God tells Habakkuk to wait because his plan is not yet. But it's coming, it's just not yet. Right? Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. And the fact that God says that it's an appointed time tells us that God is the one in control. He's working according to his appointed time, according to his timetable. And in his time, he shall fulfill his promises and purposes. God's plan is sure. It will not fail. Right? God says it, will, it hastens to the end. 
it will not lie. This plan, this vision is dependable. It will not disappoint. God is the sovereign, divine author who has already written the story. And he has already written the conclusion to the story. Indeed, all of human history is moving inexorably towards this ending that God has written. Nothing will change that. This plan is sure, and God tells Habakkuk, know that my plan is certain. Wait for it. Wait for it. So on our part, we are to patiently wait on the Lord. You know, God may appear as though He is doing nothing. You know, notice how verse 3, God says, if it seems slow. Right? There will be many times where we think God is absent or God isn't doing anything or He's delaying. Right? If it seems slow. But even through those moments, God tells Habakkuk, wait, wait, even if it seems slow. Wait for it. And we should remember that God's ways and God's thoughts are higher than ours. Therefore, we can expect that His timing will not always be our timing. Right? As Second Peter 3 reminds us, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. You know, beloved, God is never late. God is never late. According to His timetable, God is never late. You know, his will will be done in the fullness of His time. You know, at the end of verse 3, He says, It will surely come. It will not delay. So how do we wait well? Right? Knowing that God's plan is certain, that His plan will be fulfilled, how do we wait well in the meantime? Verse 4 begins by telling us how not to wait. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Now, this part of the verse refers to the proud Babylonians or anyone who trusts in themselves rather than God. So basically, if, if we are proud, you know, if we are self-sufficient, if we're trying to make a plan for ourselves, if we're relying on our own resources to get on in life, we won't wait well. We won't wait well. The proud person is not right in God's sight. You know, in trying to be self-dependent, self-sufficient, you know, in making a plan for himself or herself, the proud person is restless, never satisfied. Verse 5. Isn't it ironic? You know, the more we try to take our life into our own hands, the more restless we get, the less satisfied we become. The proud person is greedy for gain. I think perhaps one of the reasons for that is because we feel like, you know, if, if I'm self-dependent, then I better get more stuff to make it through life. I need more stuff. Right? I need more resources to bring me through all the different things that can happen to me in this life. So the proud person is greedy for gain because he's trying to provide for himself or herself. No, but, but this is the irony. Right? God says in verse 5, wine is a traitor. You know, that word wine can also be translated wealth. Wine, you know, pleasure or wealth is treacherous, you know, meaning that whoever relies on wine or wealth will be disappointed because wine or wealth will betray 
the trust placed on it is treacherous. Don't place your confidence in treacherous things. Pride prevents us from patiently waiting on the Lord. When we insist on our will, our way, our timing, you know, it's very easy to get upset with life. It's easy to get upset when God's providence doesn't align with our plans. You know, think about this. You know, think about our impatience, our frustrations, our disappointments, our discouragement, our despair. You know, how much of all that is the symptom of our pride? Right? These could be deeper reasons for our impatience and frustration. I think, think about the last time you were impatient. Why were you so impatient? Was it because you were hoping for your will to be done, your kingdom come at your time? You know, I know that I get impatient with my kids. Why? Often because, not because they're bad kids, but because I want things done my way at my time. You know, I, I don't want to be inconvenienced. I want things to happen exactly the way I want them to happen. Basically, it's my kingdom. Right? And that's why I get so impatient and frustrated with them. So this is, a, this is a good thing to reflect on for all of us. You know, how much of our impatience, frustration, and disappointment is driven by our pride in thinking that we should be the ones who determine when everything happens. So we can't wait well if we are proud. That's, therefore, Habak- God goes on to say, we wait well by living by faith. The opposite of pride is faith. Right? God says to Habakkuk, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, to live by faith means to daily depend on God. So unlike the arrogant, self-sufficient person, the righteous person humbly trusts in God. And the righteous person is not too proud to acknowledge that the ways of God can be a mystery to us. God is not obliged to explain himself to us. God is not obliged to help us understand all there is to understand about him. He simply calls us to trust him because he is good. I think Proverbs 3 verses 5 to 7 are a good counterpart to this text. Proverbs 3, 5 to 7, I think it's a familiar passage to many of us. Some of us, for some of us, these might be our favorite verses in Scripture. You notice the connection between trust and humility versus pride and seeking our own way. Proverbs 3, 5 to 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Do not be proud. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Don't be proud. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now, we may struggle to understand God's ways and be perplexed by His providence, but we can humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and submit to His plans for us. We can rest in God. Isn't this comforting? Unlike the proud person who is restless, the righteous one who walks by faith can rest in God, even if we don't see the fulfillment of His plans in our lifetime. And this is a humbling thing for us to consider, that God's, the, the fulfillment of God's promises and plans may come after we die. We may not see 
the accomplishment of God's promises. And that's okay. I think that's a very sobering, humbling, humbling thing for us to consider. But, but this, is the, this is what Hebrews is saying, right? In Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 speaks of not just living by faith, but dying in faith. Why dying in faith? Because we haven't received the promises. Hebrews 11 says, those died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now, yet we can be certain that God will work all things together for our eternal good. As C.H. Spurgeon said, the Christian believes God to be too wise to err and too good to be unkind. He trusts Him where he cannot trace Him, looks up to Him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. One of my favourite hymns is this one called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I think we, we sing this uh, now and then. Written by William Cooper. And Cooper wrote this hymn not in easy times. You know, he had just, in fact, he wrote this hymn right after uh, a bout of depression, right after he had attempted suicide. You know, he wrote this hymn amid a very hard struggle with depression and suicidal thoughts. You know, his lyrics encourage us to trust in our wise and good God, especially in confusing circumstances. Basically, this hymn expresses Habakkuk 2 and Proverbs 3, 5 to 7. He says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Habakkuk 2, 4 encourages us to persevere in faith. It speaks of persevering faith. And this is why Hebrews quotes this verse to encourage Christians to keep trusting in Christ. Don't give up. Right. Hebrews 10, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Persevere in faith. That's what Habakkuk is telling us. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now, but this begs an even more fundamental question. Right? How can we be righteous in the first place? We know that the righteous shall live by faith, but how can we be righteous? Habakkuk 2 encourages us to have faith in the fulfillment of God's saving promises. Yes, God will save his people. He will judge the enemies of his people trust Him. Right? So Habakkuk 2 points us to the fulfillment of God's saving promises and these saving promises are ultimately fulfilled in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ. So Habakkuk 2 points us ultimately forward to the accomplishment of all of God's saving promises in the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. So have faith in God's saving promises have faith ultimately in the Saviour whom God will provide. Ah, and that's how we can be righteous. That's how we can be righteous. The only way we can be made right with God is by faith alone in this Saviour whom God has promised. Faith alone in Christ alone. So Habakkuk 2 speaks of persevering faith, but it also speaks of justifying faith. God made us for himself, but we have all sinned. Uh, beloved, I hope we realize that we are the ones who are proud 
Now, we're not naturally the righteous ones, but naturally we are the proud ones who are self-sufficient, who worship ourselves, who worship our own ability to make a life for ourselves. We have all turned away from God. We've forsaken Him in our pride. We have tried to live self-sufficiently without God. Because we've rebelled against our Creator, we face His righteous judgment against us. But God, in His grace and mercy, sent His only Son, Jesus, to save sinners like us by dying on the cross, by rising from the dead. And Habakkuk 2 holds out this promise to us, says, we shall live. We shall live. We can be made right with God if we have faith in Jesus. We celebrated Reformation Day last weekend, and the Reformation recovered this precious truth of justification by faith alone, not works. And indeed, Paul in the New Testament quotes this very verse to show that the Old Testament teaches the very same gospel. It's the same gospel of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Right? Same gospel in the Old Testament or in the New Testament is by faith. By faith. Now, Paul says in Romans 1, verse 16, 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Galatians 3, 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You know, Martin Luther understood these words and it really opened his mind and his heart to the grace of God. Martin Luther said this, these words, When by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the righteous shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Friends, this is how we will be satisfied. This is how we will enjoy rest, being made right with God through faith in Christ. Finally, let's look at the third part of uh, the sermon, the third point, which is the next part of God's reply, verses 6 to 20. God's assurance, justice will come. Now Habakkuk began by asking God, how long, O Lord? And God's reply to him was, wait, wait patiently, live by faith, not by sight. Know that my plans will be fulfilled, so wait. But Habakkuk also questioned God about his justice, right? You know, God, how can you be just in sending Babylon against your people? You know, how can, how can you do this? And in verses 6 to 20, God replies to that, right? God assures his prophet that he will be just. He will uphold his justice. Babylon will be judged. And verses 6 to 20 are what they call a taunt song, right? It's a bit like trash talk. No, not really. <laughs> it's like taunt song with pronouncing five woes against Babylon, right? The first woe is in verses 6 to 8. The plunderer will be plundered. You know, as, as you look at these woes, there's a, there's, there's a lot of poetic justice going on in these verses. Whatever Babylon does will be done to it, right? An eye for an eye, 
a tooth for a tooth. You know, th- these verses are very clear that justice will be served. They will get their comeuppance, right? They will get what they deserve, exactly according to what they have done. So the plunderer will be plundered, the first woe. It says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. Babylon, which unjustly pillaged and looted other nations, will finally suffer loss. The second woe, verses 9 to 11, the conqueror will be conquered. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Babylon selfishly sought security for itself. It sought to build a house, an empire for itself at the expense of others. But the irony is that even what it builds, right, that the house that it builds will cry out against it in judgment. That's in verse 11. You know, there's some figurative language of how the, even the house shall speak against Babylon. The third woe, verses 12 to 14, the ambitious will have nothing. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire? and nations weary themselves for nothing? Now, Babylon oppressed others to promote its own vain glory, to satisfy its ungodly ambition. You know, but all of its proud ambition will turn out to be futile. In fact, God himself will see to it, right? Is it not from the Lord of hosts that all the things that you labor for are for nothing? All the things that tire you out, all the things that you give so much time and effort and energy and headspace to, all these things will turn out to be nothing. Why do you weary yourself for nothing? The fourth woe, the shameless will be shamed. Verses 15 to 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon you, your glory. So Babylon took pleasure, right? It took delight in exploiting and humiliating the nations for its own enjoyment. It kind of made the nations drunk so they could kind of watch them in their nakedness. But now what comes around, what goes around comes around. Babylon will drink the cup of God's judgment. In the fifth woe, the idolatrous will end up powerless. Verses 18 to 20. What prophet is an idol? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. Babylon will come to the realization that all its Idols that it has trusted in for power, for might, for success. All these false gods have no power to save. They are mute. They say nothing. They do nothing. They achieve nothing. The idolatrous will end up powerless. The true God, in contrast, reigns over all creation. Verse 20. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. This is the irony, that the the false gods are silent. 
they say nothing. But here, the worshippers of the true God are silenced. They are silenced by His awe, by His majesty, by His glory. They come into His temple and they have nothing to say. I think that's a common response in Scripture to the glory of God. Not the multiplying of more words, but actually silence. Reverend silence. And I think this also tells us what's, well, what's happening to Habakkuk as well. Remember, he began with disputations. Right? He began with, you know, in, in a sense, arguments with God. Right? He, he's asking God questions. God's responding. He's asking a question back. There is, there's a, 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 a seeking after God in that sense, uh, an argumentation, a disputation with God. But ultimately, God says, all of Habakkuk's protests will be hushed will be silenced. Right? And, and Habakkuk will keep silent, not because he is you know, resentfully kind of not saying anything. No, but Habakkuk will keep silent because he has finally encountered the greatness of God himself. Right? God, God doesn't just give Habakkuk answers. God reveals his glory to his prophet. And I think when, when Habakkuk sees the glory of God, Habakkuk is silenced. Right? It's very much like Job at the end of the book where he, you know, where he says, I, I heard of you, but now I have seen you and therefore I repent in dust and ashes. It's the same response. And I think that, that's what God is telling Habakkuk as well. You know, you will be, your protests will be hushed, not because you have all the answers, not because your circumstances have improved, but because you have encountered the great God. And friends, when we see God for who He is, when we encounter Him for who He really is, we will be silenced in reverent awe and worship. Our hearts will be lost in wonder, love and praise and adoration. It's not just about getting answers from God. It's about worshipping Him, of adoring Him, of trusting in Him because we see Him for who He is. Habakkuk learns to be satisfied in God himself. In the words of Psalm 73, verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the encouragement to us, beloved, from the book of Habakkuk. Hope in God. Not, not just in the answers that He can give you, not in the things that He can give you, but hope in God Himself. See Him for who He really is. The judgment on Babylon warns us against worldliness. Greed, earthly security, vain ambition, shameless pleasure, idolatry. Now, these things do not last, and these things have no power to save. Instead, Habakkuk calls us to live by faith, in the faithful God, to wait patiently for the fulfillment of His promises and purposes, to rest assured in God, to know that God and His gospel will ultimately triumph. And, and verse 14 is, is a glorious, glorious promise of the triumph of God's purposes. The, the nations of the world trust in their own efforts, seek after things that end up to be nothing, but in contrast, Habakkuk, God says through Habakkuk, 
the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And how will this happen? Now, God will bring His salvation to the ends of the earth by shining the light of His gospel in the hearts of people worldwide to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul picks up on this verse in 2 Corinthians 4. It's the work of the gospel. And this is how God will triumph. This is how God will spread His glory across the world. Therefore, don't weary ourselves for nothing. Seek first God's kingdom. Live for Jesus and His gospel. It will be worth it. Walk by faith in Him as exiles through the wilderness of this world because one day our faith shall become sight and God's justice will come. And God's judgment on Babylon is but a preview of this coming greater judgment. You know, Habakkuk wrestled with God's justice, right? How can? Ultimately, the answer to Habakkuk's question can only be found at the cross. At the cross, a seemingly even greater injustice was perpetrated as an innocent man was crucified for the sins of the world. And yet, the cross demonstrates God's justice. The The cross shows that God can accomplish much good by overruling even the worst of human wickedness. Jesus died and raised from the dead to show that God is just. And by His death and resurrection, He satisfies God's justice so that God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And if we trust in Jesus, then the judgment that we deserve has been borne by a substitute. But if we refuse Jesus then we will face judgment because God's justice will come. So beloved, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is our only hope amid tough times and perplexing providence. And may God help us to live by faith in Christ until He returns to fulfill our hope.